I'm Jasmine Moradi, and you're listening to the Queens of Tech podcast, a podcast series about workplace role models, where I get the opportunity to ask 60 plus questions to female influencers about their journey into STEM, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. My vision with this podcast is to raise the workplace ecosystem for women in tech. My mission is to bridge the gap between schools and workplaces by highlighting female role models in STEM to encourage more young girls and women to unleash their full potential in these fields to reach top leadership roles. In this episode, I'm very excited to welcome my guest, Alisa Ordu, Diversity and Inclusion Consultant. Hi, Alisa. Hi, Jasmine. I'm very happy to have you joining us from London, UK today. How are you? I am very good. Thank you. Glad to hear. Now, let us dive into your journey into STEM. Hope you're ready for the Queens of Tech 60 plus questions. Yep. Let's form up with a few fun facts about you. How would you describe your personality in three hashtags? Hashtag optimist, book enthusiast, and also maybe something along the lines of why networking is great. How would you describe your life in three sentences? I would describe my life as always traveling, thirsty for knowledge, and keen to connect with others. What kind of music stimulates and motivates you the most? I find when I'm doing like deep work, strategy work, I tend to listen to something like Debussy or something classical. And if I'm doing something where I'm just drilling out tasks, then it's just hardcore techno. What is your personal motto? Inclusion is an action, never simply a feeling. What is your favorite book? My favorite book at the moment is Growth Mindset. What is your favorite podcast? My favorite podcast right now is yours. Mac or PC? Mac, baby, Mac. Say something interesting about you that most people don't know. I'm quite good at picking up languages. My Spanish is good. My French is okay. There's some German, Portuguese in there, a little Arabic, a little Italian. Most people probably don't know that unless they've traveled with me. What is your hidden talent? Music. Definitely singing, singing and playing guitar. If you were going to write a book about your life, what would the title be? Maybe On Being Mixed. Great start, Alisa. Now, let us dig deeper. Our childhood has an effect on our adulthood. Our early experiences shape our belief about ourselves, others, and the world. Now I want to discover your childhood. Where did you grow up? I grew up in the Philippines. I was there for five years. And I also grew up in the States. I was there on and off for 10 years. And then later, I was in Tunisia. Wow. What was your dream job as a child? I've had so many, you know, and was one of those kids. One of them was to grow up to be a singer. Music was definitely a big part of it. But I also really wanted to be a therapist as well, especially as a kid. I was very fascinated with people and couples and relationships and probably, according to my parents, too fascinated. But I think in the back of my mind, I thought, oh, like her up to do some form of therapy, maybe. What was your favorite subject in school? I loved my arts classes. I loved my music classes. I think the one I probably engaged with the most was English, whether it was reading or writing. That was always where I had the most attention. What was your least favorite subject? I didn't have one. I remember growing up hearing, which I think a lot of girls grow up hearing, that, you know, like we're not so good at maths or it's a boy's subject, same as science. And even within, you know, some people I knew and with like family as well. I remember when I went to uni, because eventually I did study psychology. And I remember thinking that little voice is in the back of my head that I'm not good at maths. Girls are shit at maths. You know, it's not going to happen. And shooting myself in the foot maybe by studying a science subject. And ultimately when I was in uni, fun fact, statistics was my best subject because I tried the most in that subject because I had that voice in my head saying, that 
I couldn't do it. And then I ended up doing that better than the aspects of it that I enjoyed more. What is your earliest memory of technology and the arrival of the internet? I don't know if this is the earliest, but definitely the deepest memory. I have very fond memories of playing Lara Croft Tomb Raider with a joystick variance <laughs> PC in the Philippines when we were using a dial-up internet connection. Which were the three first technology gadgets you owned? Oh, I had a Walkman, which I loved. I almost want to say my light-up shoes. At one point, I had light-up shoes. You remember those? Probably some of my mum's cooking paraphernalia. I really liked using her bread machine, even as a kid. I was always in the kitchen, you know, running underneath her skirts, trying to use the different tools. Who was your female role model growing up and why? My mum has actually been a massive role model in my life growing up and still now. Um, and I probably don't give her enough credit on that front. But yeah, she's had so many pivots in her career, which is something I really deeply admire. I think the people that are able to successfully pivot and be good at more than one thing at one time, that's the dream, right? We contain multitudes, but I think people that are able to do that, I'm very impressed by. And she started as a midwife and a nurse, and then eventually she had her own landscape gardening company. And then she was doing a lot of work in philanthropy and working with orphanages and all sorts of stuff. And she's just proved herself to be this multi-entrepreneur whilst raising three kids. And that's always really impressed me. How do you think where you grew up and the school you went to and the generation you come from influence your education and career choice? I think growing up moving around so much has greatly influenced me. I think it's made me obsessed probably with people and fascinated with people and culture. What makes us take, what makes us do the things we do and how similar we all are, even if we're separated by land and language. Yeah, growing up moving around the world has definitely entrenched my interest in people and influenced what I've ended up studying. So I ended up studying psychology and gender and international development and globalization and all these things at Manchester and then at London School of Economics. I think that travel was a big part of what opened my eyes up to that and wanting to learn more. Very interesting. Now I'm going to read two quotes. First one, how does the universe expect me to choose a career path at 16? I can't even choose what I want for dinner. Again, Abraham Lincoln said, I quote, the best way to predict your future is to create it. So Alisa, I want to know the choices behind your career path. Where and what did you study at university? I actually have a few degrees. So my first degree was an art and design foundation, which was awesome. I was doing analog film photography. And then after that, I did a BSc in psychology for a couple of years up in Manchester. And then I moved down to London to go to the London School of Economics and Political Science to do an MSc in gender, international development and globalization. Who and what influenced you to get into your choice of field? My first degree definitely influenced my second. So one of the things that I loved when I was studying psychology was looking at community psychologies and indigenous knowledges. And in short, what I was learning in psychology was that a lot of the time people know what's quote unquote wrong with them, right? They know where they need help. They just don't have access to the goods and resources that can get them there. Or what I'm getting at here a lot of the time is privileges. And oftentimes within psychology, we have a frame of mind where it's like Medicaid people. And I'm not one to say there's anything wrong with that. But oftentimes people know a lot more about what can help them than they're given credit to, but they're just not always listened to. And the reality of their communities aren't always fully understood. Basically, what I'm getting at is there's a whole space between my problems as an individual or the, the issues, my daily struggles as an individual and what links me as an individual to my group in society and the things that collectively bring our moods down, so to speak. So that was why I pivoted from psychology to focusing specifically on gender in an international context, because I know that a lot of the things that impact me as a woman, for example, or me as a woman in the UK, that there's some overlaps there that don't always get teased out and seen. So I'd say that my studies definitely were a big influence, but also just moving around the world and talking to people and realizing that we have a lot more in common than we know. What professional roles have you had before that led you to becoming a diversity and inclusion consultant? 
When I was little, I used to do a lot of babysitting. I loved doing that. And I loved going to different orphanages with my mom and meeting the kids. But in terms of my first real job, my first office job, I was an entry-level researcher at a research firm where I quickly rose somehow in my first year from an entry-level researcher to a project manager. And then eventually I was head of HR for this 500-person small research company. And this influenced my next couple of jobs because it gave me a taste for tech. And I dipped my feet in the tech pond because a lot of the projects we worked for were on like Bergatner or Microsoft and companies like that. So I started the wheels of change were turning in my mind like, ooh, what's this tech thing? I hear all about these cool bean bags. Sounds fun. Pizza and beers off to work? What is this startup culture? So then I jumped from there into being a communications manager at a software startup. And then I went freelance. So I was doing mostly what I'm doing now, marketing, diversity and inclusion consulting. So what are your main responsibilities as a diversity and inclusion consultant? I've delivered more than 500 workshops on diversity and inclusion at places like Amazon, Stella McCartney, SoundCloud, you name it. Day to day, I deliver a lot of workshops, but I also work with leaders on their people strategy and their people policies and also setting out their inclusion roadmaps. And my ultimate goal is to leave the workplace better than I found it. I love the quote, choose a job you love and you will never have to work a day in your life. So Alisa, what do you love about your role? I love helping people get vulnerable. I'm a big fan of Brene Brown, and I love how she talks about vulnerability as a form of learning rather than as a form of weakness. And I love teasing that out in leaders that I get to work with. Because oftentimes I think when it comes to talking about race, gender, sexuality, age, ability, neurodiversity, all these new normals in our workplaces, these things that we oftentimes weren't speaking about before, but were there. (laughs) And now not only are they there, but now we have to talk about it and build a sense of language and experience with which to communicate and have more courageous conversations about these things. So I really enjoy working with leaders that want to go to that vulnerable place. They want to have these really tough conversations, but ultimately conversations, I think, that will get us to healthier, happier workplaces. What is the best experience you've had in your role so far? Any examples? Some of the best experiences have genuinely come from teams I've been on and teams I've helped grow. So my last role, I was head of consulting at a company called Hustle Crew, and I had so many incredible people on my team. And just watching what they've done with their careers since they left or since they've been working with the company less, or even while they've been working with the company, has brought me a lot of personal joy. And I'll give a little shout out to one of them, Benji Kusi, whose book just came out, How to Be Kinder to Yourself and Others. I love staying in touch with my current and old teens and seeing all the things they've gone on to achieve. When I see them rising, that genuinely makes me feel lifted as well. And what is the biggest challenge you've encountered so far and how did you tackle that? Racism, sexism, or if you're a woman of color, both of these things at the same time. How have I conquered it? Honey, I'll let you know. I haven't solved that one yet. What do you wish everybody understood about your role? That it's important, that it's business critical. I think a lot of the time, especially with what's going on in the tech sector, with like massive jobs being cut left and right, I think a lot of the time companies are looking at roles in terms of what's business critical, what's going to help us get to our better OKRs or KPIs or whatever the business buzzword is that week. But our people are business critical. Our people are our biggest resource, our human resources. And I think that's what I want people to realize is really important, that the ways in which we treat each other directly impact the goods and services we design and create. And if we want us better serve our diverse customer base or client base or we know whatever sector industry you're in the more diverse brains you have working on the projects the better you're able to do that you're going to be so really i wish people understood the value of it more and didn't see it as this extra or this woo-woo thing but actually as a really integral part of the world and part of our work what is the one common myth about your professional field that you want to disapprove that privilege is a bad thing i hear this all the time 
You know, I actually had this the other day when somebody came to me and they were like, is this going to be one of those workshops where I just like feel bad about being white, feel bad about being bloke, or like feel bad about being straight? And I was like thinking to myself, wow, Lord gave me the confidence of this person. In some ways, I was really happy that this person said this. I think I wouldn't go into a workshop and kind of throw that at the wall in the beginning. But it got me thinking, and I think it was a great impromptu icebreaker opener for the group to voice this opinion or this concern that it's about telling people what they're doing wrong or who has what. And that's absolutely not what it's about. I see privilege as something that we all have, just in different amounts. And I'm more curious about how we can use it as a force for good than about how we can use it to shame each other. What do you love about working with the tech industry? I love how fast-paced it is. I love how it's ever-changing. It just feels like there's so many advances and innovations that I see happening more and faster in tech. There's a company called Cognition, and they do these CogX awards, and I got to judge a couple of the awards last year, and the category was like best AI product, and another one was best social impact product in tech. And I was just looking at all of the innovations people had made within the, just those two aspects of the sector within the last year, and my mind was blown away, and that was just the people that entered that particular award. But yeah, I'm always fascinated by the rate and evolution uptake and innovation in tech. I think that's what keeps me here. Oprah Winfrey said, I quote, think like a queen. A queen is not afraid to fail. Failure is another stepping stone to greatness. So, Alisa, what have by far been your biggest achievement in your career? I think we need to rethink our relationships with failure. I know it sounds cheesy, but I've definitely said this to people in my life or people in my teams. Those of you that are failing more, probably those of you that are trying more new things and the people that never fail or seemingly never fail, perhaps the people that never try anything new, right? They're just staying in their lane. Um, so I think my relationship with failure, and you'll notice I use the term pivot, career pivot. That's just like a code word for where you feel like I messed up and then made a massive change or used a growth mindset. So I think that's been a big unlock in my career, rethinking my relationship with failure and getting excited about those growth pivots. So what is the biggest factor that has helped you become successful in that subject? Any success habits? Be conscious of your digital footprints and other people's digital footprints as well. I always say you're only an email away from everyone in the connected world. And I think it's really true. That's been one of the biggest things that I think has helped me be successful is my fearlessness in relation to outreach or in relation to networking, like how I met you. And how do you measure your own performance at work? There's the quantifiable ways when I'm looking at impact data. But in terms of qualitatively, honestly, I have a wins folder. I'm forever screenshotting things, whether it's somebody's LinkedIn reference or an email I got from a young person I'm mentoring. And I oftentimes use that as a barometer of success, especially on a low day. I'll open up that wins folder and remind myself of all the people that having a talk with me or doing a workshop with me or having me on a panel wasn't a waste of time and kind of help that imposter syndrome voice be a little bit wider and that confident and killing it voice be a little bit louder. You just told us that you have a great success in connecting with your failures in your life. So what is your biggest failure in your career and what did you learn from it? My biggest career's failure was speaking up. I know I'm much better at that now, but I reflect on things that weren't necessarily my failings, but maybe failings of people around me that brought me down or things that happened in the workplace that I think if they'd happened now versus 10, 15 years ago when they happened, I would have handled them completely differently. Yeah, just using my big girl voice is the biggest failure. Moments really couldn't speak up, but I fiercely needed not to be quiet. What is inspiring and motivate you the most in your role and career right now? 
the fact that what I work in is actually a subject of conversation. A couple of years ago, I feel like conversations about diversity and inclusion, people didn't even know what that meant. We weren't even using even conversations about pronouns in the workplace. We weren't even necessarily having these conversations at work, let alone having them in our email signatures. So I'm very motivated and very encouraged by the fact that people who don't immediately work in diversity and inclusion are interested in it and discussing it because I think that's how it snowballs. That's how it grows. Let us now jump into the influence of mentors, role models, champions, and sponsors. Role models can consciously or subconsciously be a powerful force in our lives. In addition, champions can stand up and advocate for us and open up the world of possibilities. Sponsors match emerging talent with leaders and influential employees who can help us move ahead in our careers. Alisa, do you have a mentor, champion, or a sponsor today? The short answer is no. I mentor people, but I don't actually have one of my own at the moment. Who is the female role model you look up to in your field? So many people. Where do I start? I think one of the people that I have looked up to who's sort of adjacent to my field or whose work I've brought in to my own work is also Nigerian. Well, I'm half Nigerian. Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. And she has a great TED talk on the power of the single story. And I've really, really looked up to that. And that's something that I leverage in a lot of my own work is helping people move beyond the single story. Or I guess it's maybe a more modern adaptation of the phrase judging a book by its cover. A lot of the time we see somebody and we just assume, that's it, we just assume that based on how young this person looks, whatever it is, that they're going to have something that's worth our time or not. And I think that when we do that about going beyond individuals, but when we start to talk about specific communities or, for example, racial groups, then it very, very quickly spirals out of control. I love her her writing. So many of her books are great. There's some statements she's made over the years which have been contentious, which I'm not here to support. But one of the things that's resonated with me the most about her is this idea we can go beyond the power of the single story and just not always making assumptions about others. History shows that it has been more common for men having mentors, champions and sponsor in business than women. So how important do you think it is to have a mentor, champion and sponsor during one's career? I think it's really, really, really important. If you can have somebody in your life or in your career that validates your work and underlines what you're doing or rather puts it in bold, I think that can only be a good thing. Let's move on to leadership. Adena Friedman, president and CEO of Nasdaq, said, I quote, Empowering those around you to be heard and valued makes a difference between a leader who simply instructs and one who inspires. Alicia, what does leadership mean to you? Good leadership to me means keeping that ladder down and pulling everybody else up. And what does bad leadership mean to you? Breaking the ladder. Who is your favorite female tech leader and why? I'm going to give a shout out to Shamadine Reed. Who created the Stack. And I went to the Stack World Conference last year and it was an absolutely incredible experience. It's also the only conference I've ever been to that was just women and largely women of color. Just being in the space was valuable, let alone what I got to hear in the talks. How would you describe yourself as a leader? I describe myself as warm and approachable. I think that oftentimes when we look at or think about leadership, or at least when I do in my head, I think about it as this kind of rigid thing, this robust thing, being megalith still. Which is, I think, how Ted Hughes described horses in one of his poems, standing strong. But I think the way that I actually end up doing it is with a lot more softness, a lot of warmth, and a lot of patience and compassion. And as a leader, what values are most important to you? Curiosity and empathy, being able to put myself in other people's shoes. And where I'm not able to do that, getting more vulnerable with that and figuring out how to do that. Better I can understand the people in my team or the people in my community, the better able to serve them and be challenged by them I'm going to be. What leadership lessons have you learned that have formed you into the leader you are today? 
not all feedback is created equal. Sometimes take feedback with a pinch of salt. I would also say authenticity is important. It's not just a soundbite. It's not just a buzzword or a hashtag to live by. I'd say embrace whatever it is that makes you. That might be the thing that some people dislike about you. Some people hate about you. But it's going to be the thing that other people love about you. And they're going to be your tribe. Focus on your strengths. Be authentic to who it is you are. And find your tribe of people and listen to those voices more than the other ones. What are your three strengths and three weaknesses? Being a natural connector, helping people have difficult conversations and coaching. What three things am I not very good at? Keeping my answers short in podcasts. Remembering that not all feedback is created equal. Putting out my food recycling on the wrong day. Let us now jump into the hottest topic in business day, workplace culture. Unlocking the power of diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging. Your expertise area. So Alisa, what does DEIB mean to you personally? I oftentimes hear people referencing this story. I don't know who said it originally, so sorry, I'm not quoting the right person here. But this idea of, you know, who gets invited to the dinner, who gets invited to have a seat at the table, who gets served food, who gets invited back, who gets to speak and not be spoken over. Or as my friends in Hawaii say, who gets invited to the luau? When I think diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging, I always think of this example because I know that there's a big difference between just quote unquote diversity. So getting different people in the mix versus are those people really included? Are they visibilized? Are they promoted? Are they listened to? Are they believed? And this is also where things like equity comes into it. Not just having a seat at the table, but being able to eat, also getting served, being invited back and being able to speak at that table too and getting heard. What do you consider being three to five signs of good company culture if you were to join a company? Good question. Uh, well, some of the things that I look at when I'm thinking about joining a company or working with a company as a consultant, I'll look at their careers page. Is it the kind of company where they've got all of these like beautiful, spicy pictures of multi-culty babes, which are maybe from Unsplash or stock images, but that actually when I look on LinkedIn, do I actually see that reflected in terms of who works in the company? What is representation like in a company and how true is their website to the rest of their digital footprint? Another thing that I look at is their relationship to failure culture, especially within tech. What kinds of public messages has the company put out about changes that they've had to make to their hiring or their products and why? Personally, the brands that I feel some of the biggest connections to are companies that come out and say, hey, you know what? This is our statement. And it's not just because there's a BLM protest tomorrow. This is our statement because this is where we are. And these are our opportunities for growth. I love it when companies come out and say, hey, you know what? We don't know. Unknown unknowns. We don't know it all yet. This is where we are in the journey. This is what we're working on. And this is what we're hoping hoping for tomorrow. Um, and some companies do that really, 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 really well. Other companies I see shy away from those difficult conversations. And that to me tells me that either they don't think those conversations are worth having or they're not having them, both of which would be signs to me of not so good company culture. As a woman, what has been the most significant barrier in your career and how have you overcome these challenges? think for me, when I think about barriers, I always think about it intersectionally. How our identity or experience in one area is compounded by our identity or experience in another area. So obviously, I'm a woman, I'm a girl, I'm also mixed race, I'm also youngish, say my age. The most significant barrier for me, especially with my work within the tech space, has been my gender, race, but I feel like also my age as well. Not being taken seriously because of how I look a lot of the time. What do you think is important for more women to join the tech industry, especially as leaders? If we want the tech industry at large to do better by us and for us, we have to be at the drawing board. We have to be at the highest levels. 
You know, we can't just be in the space working from the bottom up as entry levels. We also need to be there from the top down. The people that are responsible for setting the culture, for setting the tone, I think it's crucially important. I can think of a few examples of work I've recently done. I've done quite a bit of work outside of tech within the National Health Service, which is still free here at the moment in the UK. One of the things that I was realizing when I was doing a lot of diversity and inclusion workshops and work within the NHS was the relationship between healthcare and tech. I mean, why is it that in London you're nine times more likely to die in childbirth as a black woman, even after you've accounted for class, even after you've accounted for, you know, the languages you speak, the location of where you live? Why is that? And some of the teams I was working with were showing me daily examples of things. For example, there was a, a rash that was going around and the pictures that went out showed the rash white skin. So a lot of parents of kids from South Asian, from black, from Latin, you know, from Middle Eastern, you name it, from parents whose kids were not white passing, didn't spot it in time purely because the information they were being given wasn't fully accurate. So I think when we start to think about, okay, why is it important to have women in tech or why is it important to have greater diversity and not just greater diversity of thought, but greater diversity of experience, I actually see it as being a life and death thing. You will be able to find more solutions for more people and to save more lives or help more lives or make more lives happier, depending on what your tech is there to build, the more that you understand about them. And how are you going to understand them if they're not also part of your team? Do you and how do you speak with your female and male colleagues about DEIB? For example, salary gaps and promotions. I was reading the other day, whether it was in McKinsey or Forbes, that at our current pace, we're going to close the gender pay gap in like 100 years or something. I'm not even going to quote what the information said about the ethnic gender pay gap, but I can tell you it was worse. Basically, selfishly, I don't want to wait that long. In terms of how I talk to colleagues about salary gaps, I hit them with facts. And if anybody asks me what I'm earning, I'm always very transparent about that. I wish more companies were transparent about that. But there are some job boards that I've seen out there in communities like Ada's List and Alpha. There's so many communities out there, largely of women in tech, who are getting really serious about, hey, this is my job title. This is what I earn. Real people, real jobs, you know, and all around the world. And I think that can only be a really good thing because then we know what we're working with and also what our male and female and non-binary counterparts are earning as well. There are many public and internal discussions about the barriers women face from reaching higher position in the tech industry. How do you feel it has affected and is affecting you? And what is your advice on how to best unlock, unblock these roadblocks? I think it's affected me in terms of, I mean, I guess I would just say bias or likability bias in particular. For anybody that's interested in this, Lean In has amazing research on this and some great posts and videos about this. But in a nutshell, we can think about likability biases. When women versus men, for example, are exhibiting certain behaviors, we tend to like it. There's so much research on this very subject. We could get lost. We could do a whole podcast about it. But thinking about if a woman is working on something really intensely, it being seen as being bitchy versus, you know, a man working on something very intensely, we might see it as, wow, he's just so focused. He just really goes into a deep dive. So it's like the power of perception or not wanting to be too loud. I don't want to be seen as being too bossy. But on the flip side, if I'm leaning into those really feminine, legend, supposedly feminine, stereotypical traits of being nice, collaborative, team player, it's a catch-22 because oftentimes then you're seen as less serious as well. You know, nice, nice for what, as Drake would say. Um, so I think those types of biases have definitely held me back in the workplace and I'm struggling to find my place in between that dynamic of wanting to be a leader, but not wanting to be seen as bitchy or bossy and wanting to be nice, but then also not being a total pushover or taking total advantage over. A lot of communities work on helping women learn to code. And also a lot of companies spend lots of marketing money attracting women to their companies. 
However, the tech industry finds it hard to especially retain women. What is your best advice or strategies for how companies can work to build a stronger corporate culture that engages gender diversity and equity? Work on that company culture. What is that company culture? I think a lot of the time, women in tech, we're told that we're imposters. We just need to get rid of our imposter syndrome. We just need to be more resilient. We just need to upskill, upskill. But when are we going to talk about the bias problem that tech has? When are we going to talk about the racism problems that tech has or the homophobia that tech has or the sexism that tech has or the ageism that tech has? I think that's what companies need to do. They need to, frankly, Jasmine, they need to do the work. They need to push up their sleeves, get the elbow grease in and not just try to attract more women, but to actually have a workplace culture in which women can thrive. Because what happens if you do all of this love all of these beautiful ad campaigns you get all these spicy chicks in there you won't be able to keep them let alone can't promote them can't retain them can't visibilize them so i think companies need to work on their internal culture and understanding your biases and privileges is a great place to start because otherwise you're just going to hire women into these roles that they're just going to end up leaving so i think the bigger question isn't just how to attract women but how to make workplaces more equitable than they already are and more inclusive and then we can start to build belonging in that order and when i say equity i think it's very very different from equality you know equality it's kind of the dream I was sold on growing up. Treat everybody the same. It's going to be great. And that's cool. You know, treat everybody the same. Okay. And that got us here. It's a little bit like the book, What Got Us Here Won't Get Us There. Shout out to my dad for getting me that book. I still have it. And I still refer to it all the time. But it won't necessarily get us there. So when I think about equity, it's not how do we treat everybody the same, but how do we give everybody what it is that they need? And that might look different for you and it might look different for me. The more that companies focus on those differences of needs, they'll find it easier to start building from the ground up. What would you say are the few challenges of implementing DEIB belonging culture in a workplace today? I think people give up too easily. That's something I've seen. There's a lot of buzz around global social movements like Me Too, Black Lives Matter. But, you know, your people and your people are there and your people policies outlive. Well, they're not necessarily going to outlive these social movements. These social movements have not died, by the way, people. They are still happening. There's still people keeping them alive. But for a lot of people, they just see these as moments of time. So I think that is one of the challenges is people just showing up as allies or performative allies in the moments they think matter or when there's a cute soundbite or when it's appropriate to put that black square or whatever square is people jumping on these moments, but then not really living that truth in between. So I think that's one of the biggest problems that I see is companies getting up too soon and also people being afraid of making mistakes. I see this so much generally speaking, but especially with diversity and inclusion. People don't want to be seen as doing the wrong thing. People don't want to be the employer that's insert nasty thing here, right? They don't want to have that PR nightmare of someone's viral tweet being the same week in which they're trying to go for their Series A funding or whatever it is. Those are two of the things that I see happening a lot is people just jumping onto the moments that matter or jumping onto the hashtag, but not being there for the hard work that goes in and around that moment. And also people shying away from being so afraid of making mistakes that they actually don't try anything new in the first place. And I think that when it comes to doing diversity and inclusion or DEI or DEIB or whatever my job is called in five years time. There's no one way to do it. You need to figure out what is right for your team. And there might be 50 versions of that before you get to that 51st version, which might be what success looks like to your team. But too many people stop after the first one or two quote unquote failures and they give up. And I think that's a sadness. I would love to see the same level of innovation in DNI that people have in response to working in agile sprints, for example. Can't we have that same energy of every single week assessing what we want to keep, kill, change, and really pushing forward that way? I would love to see that. Why and how do you think companies would benefit from having workplace gender diversity and equity, especially better gender representation at sea level? I know from research, but also being a human, the more diversity is represented in our leadership, the better outcomes we have as businesses. 
all of the biggies, McKinsey, Forbes, Lean-In, all these places, all these massive research bodies will tell us, or even London School of Economics Research, they'll tell us that companies that have gender and racial diversity in the board, in C-suite management, tend to make more money. So even if your angle is, I don't give a fuck, I just want my company to do well, even if that's your angle, then do it. But also, I know that not just about making money, but the people that are interacting with whatever it is that your company does probably don't only look one way. And if that is true, then why are the people that work for your company only one way? And surely if the people that work for your company have more of a range of experiences that they can draw from, they'll be able to draw when they're serving those diverse customers in the first place. How are you going to make solutions for people that you don't understand? Kind of comes back to that conversation we were having about healthcare and the skin rash and what shows up on what skin and how we don't know what these things are unless that diversity is shown to us in the examples that we have access to. So yeah, getting more women in leadership or more women in CCC level positions, not only because it's the right thing to do, but it's the best way to help your business grow. And how much do you think the tech industry has changed regarding this subject since you joined helping them? A lot. And I'm seeing it on a lot more websites now, I can tell you that. Just do a massive scan of websites out there, you'd see that it's a part of so many more tech companies now than it was. In terms of at least talking about it, that's something that I've seen is a major change. A lot of these companies wouldn't have even had those words on their website before the last couple of years or maybe the last 10. Yeah, talking about it, paying lip service to it is one of the big changes or it just being a part of our collective consciousness. Looking back on your career, what one thing would you have changed in your working environment to break the bias? Calling it out. Looking forward, what will you do as a leader to improve the bias for the next generation of women in tech beyond the amazing work you're already doing? Thank you. I'm going to say calling it out again, speaking up and speaking out. One of the things that I really like to do in my spare time is doing things like this, being on podcasts, being on people's panels. And I think it's really important for those of us that feel able to come out and talk about our experiences of working in tech. If we want to change the space, we also have to be honest about what changes we want to see but what the realities are today. And I think just hearing from everyday women, I was speaking on a panel about this the other week, which was specifically about getting more STEM women into tech. And yeah, I think just speaking out loud and not just having these conversations in private and not being gatekeepers as well. You know, when younger women in your network or other women in your network or other people, other non-binary people from other minoritized backgrounds come to you and say, hey, you know, what's that company like? Or you know what? Hey, what got you from A to B? Tell them the truth. Tell them the truth. I think we need to be more honest and outspoken about our realities and not have it be this elusive, opaque, kind of mysterious thing. People need to hear our stories. Let us move on to another hot topic in business today, which is work-life balance and mental health. Lisa, I'm sure that you have, without a doubt, a busy lifestyle. How do you take care of yourself to maintain good mental health? I always try to remind myself that because my job and my passions and my interests involve a lot of pouring into other people's cups, I just constantly try to remind myself that I can't pour into somebody else's cup if mine is empty. So what I do to refill my cup, I take bubble baths a lot, my skincare routine, reading, doing my gardening, cooking my yummy, smelly ethnic foods, which I love. All of those things are part of what makes me feel good and makes me feel able to rise to all of these very serious workplace challenges that we've discussed today. Have you ever experienced burnout? Yes, I quit my job. It's happened more than once. One time I had burnout and I ended up in the hospital. That's happened a few times. Another time I left the job I was in. Another time I went on a work break and I started doing some courses, which were really constructive. And I'm still doing some of those courses today. So it was all about neurolinguistic programming. I did one recently about time to think. But yeah, taking time out once you realize that you have burnt out, trying to understand why that happened and whether you're leveraging coaching, personal development, whatever it is. But if there's areas of your life where you're stuck and you want to incorporate more choice, finding outlets to help you get there. For me, that was coaching, but that could also be something else for someone else. 
What is your best advice on how companies can create more mentally healthy workplace in a new now? Just spending more time listening. Let's time talking. Whether you want to call it listening circles, I oftentimes see this happening in a great way with uh, ESG groups. So for example, I was doing a talk last year for Snapchat, those affinity groups or Black at Spotify or whatever it is. But yeah, I'd love to see more companies leveraging those groups that already exist, those networks that already exist, and trying to work towards better outcomes for what those networks need. Because oftentimes I see them happening and companies have all of these great little outlets, um, but they're operating in silos and they're not really speaking to each other. And the information the potential greater impact that we could have to serve those different groups' needs, that information isn't really being collected anywhere or collected anywhere useful, aside from like maybe a kind of employee survey. So I would recommend doing more listening, less speaking, more listening. And if you have some of these groups or these communities already in place, building better relationships with them and making better realities for them come true. What motivates you every day to get out of bed? Honestly, leaving the workplace better than I found it. When I think about what it was like for me as like a young woman joining the space and some of the questions I would be asked in interview or on company nights out or people touching my hair, whatever it was, I'm really happy at so many of the changes that I've seen in a positive sense, but I know that we're not there yet. So that's what gets me up. Now, let us wrap up with a few words of wisdom and piece of advice for our listeners. Alisa, what is the best piece of advice you've been given that has helped you during setbacks in your role and career? Be you. Everyone else has taken already. And then what is the worst advice you've ever been given and how did you tackle that? Just be quiet, smile and nod. Is there something you wish you would have known or a skill you wish you had when starting out in the tech industry? The power of soft skills. I think in tech, we there's such an emphasis on hard skills, technical skills, and the developers are like gold dust, which we can see in terms of pay inequities. But you need non-technical attributes as well. So that's something that I wish I had thought about sooner and felt confident with sooner. I now feel really confident about it and try to show other people there's all these other pathways. But I didn't really realize that in the beginning. And I was constantly thinking about, oh my God, I don't know how to code in CS, HTML5 or whatever. Instead of, oh, well, there's all these other things I can do. There's ways in which I can work as a liaison between product teams and tech teams and HR teams, for example. Um, we need all of us to get there. And the more of us that are represented in tech, again, the more tech is going to be able to rep us. So that is something that I wish I knew in a more fulsome capacity sooner. If you had the ability to go back in time when you were just at the beginning of your career, what advice would you give to your younger self? Don't do what everyone around you is doing just because they're doing it. Figure out what works for you and do that. What advice would you give to young girls and women who want and trying to break into STEM fields today, especially wanting to become next generation leaders? As you rise, because you will, remember to keep that ladder down. You can pull people up along the way. Last but not least, what is next for you in your role and career in tech? What are your career aspirations? I've contributed to a few of other people's books, maybe finally writing my own, doing more public speaking. And for the rest, follow me to find out. Thank you, Alisa, so much for being a guest on the Queens of Tech podcast, sharing your journey and work with, without a doubt, inspire change and reshape company culture for the next generation of women in tech. This is so lovely. Thank you for listening. If you have worked in the tech industry a minimum of three years and would like to share your journey, please nominate yourself or somebody you know to i at jasminemoradi.com. For more podcast episodes and to learn more about the Queens of Tech initiative, and to support us, visit queensof.tech.